So as I say, this morning Austin is going to be speaking to us from Mark 8, uh, the next in our series. So if you have a Bible in front of you, I'm going to read Mark 8, and we're going to start at verse 22. And Mark 8, verse 22 says, They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything. Jesus sent him home saying, Don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others still one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, In this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Do turn to Mark chapter 8. We're continuing our series in Mark's Gospel, um, the passage that Dave read for us earlier. And all the way through Mark... Mark keeps bringing us back, he keeps answering the same three questions, and he perhaps answers those three questions more clearly here than anywhere else. This is right in the middle of his book, and we see perhaps more clearly than anywhere in Mark these key issues he's been dealing with. Who is Jesus? Why did Jesus come? And what does it mean to follow him? That's basically the structure, the order Mark uses through this section we read earlier. But before he... um, he comes on to that. And in particular, we're looking at the, the last chunk of that in verses, if you have your Bible open, in verses 34 to 38. The NIV entitles it quite helpfully, The Way of the Cross, which is really about how we are to follow Jesus, following the one who went to the cross. Um, I've given it the title, Jesus Invites You. He invites every one of us to come to him and die. We'll see why. But before... Mark tells us this, goes, goes through this section about Jesus' cross and our cross. We have this amazing 
miracle that, uh, that Dad preached on, on last week, where uh, in the first few verses, verse 22, Jesus heals a physically blind man, and he does it. The only time in all of Scripture it seems to work quite like this. He does it in two stages. Let's look at this again. Um, Jesus tells the story of a strange miracle, this man healed in kind of two stages. Verse 22, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man, begged Jesus to touch him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. They were probably alone. When he spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? Do you see? And the man looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Jesus asks him, do you see? And from the man's own reply, we find out he doesn't really see anything yet. They're outside the village. They're probably alone. He certainly, even if there were others there, he, he, he can't really see yet. He sees something, but he doesn't really see. And then Jesus does the miracle then. Verse 25, once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. They weren't open before. He couldn't see. Now he sees. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored. It wasn't restored before. And he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go to the village, which is an echo of something that comes a little later. So what happens to this physically blind man? It's a kind of picture of what happens immediately next with a spiritually blind man at this stage. That's the Apostle Peter. Look how Mark goes on to a spiritually blind man. Verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, Jesus asked them, who do people say I am? Or, in other words, what do people see? they look at me. Who do people say that I am? And the disciples replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others, well, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked the apostles, the disciples with him. Who do you say I am? Jesus is basically asking, what do you see? Do you see anything? It's really the same question spiritually. He asked the man, moments before. What do you see when you see Jesus? Or for us today, when Jesus is preached or when you open up the Bible, what do you see? Are your eyes open? Do you have spiritual eyes? And Peter seems to do so well. Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, the one Mark's been writing about as good news from the beginning of his book. You're the Messiah. The promised king, he was a good Jew, was Peter. They were looking forward to the kingdom of God, where God would come and sort out the mess made of the world and, and, and restore the kingdom to the nation of Israel and boot out their enemies. Most of them thought Messiah would come, really, to deal with the Romans, as earlier on other heroes had come and dealt with the Greeks and so on, in their land. That's what many were looking for. That's probably what Peter had in mind. You are the Messiah. But in fact, Peter is a bit like that man who saw something, but he didn't really see. His eyes weren't really opened. 
because he actually has no idea why Jesus has come or what it means to follow him. Peter is still looking for the wrong Messiah, the wrong Jesus. That's what we go on to see. Immediately, Jesus warns them not to tell anyone about him. Now, they were supposed to tell people about Jesus. Generally, they brought people to Jesus. What he means is not to tell people that he is the Messiah. The thing Peter's just said, that the M word, we could put it, don't use the M word, is what Jesus is really saying. And we see that clearly in the next verse, if you, if you look what, what follows on. Because Jesus says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Peter says, Messiah, the M word. Jesus immediately changes it. He uses this title from Daniel, the Son of Man, because it doesn't have the same connotations of military, of kicking out the Romans, of, of dealing with that problem. Jesus says, began to teach them, as soon as Peter says, you're the Messiah. Yes, that's right. I am the Messiah. I am the promised king. But he says this, don't tell people that. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. That's essentially the whole of the leadership in Israel. He's going to be rejected by the nation, in other words, through their leaders. And that he must be killed and after three days rise. So the Messiah is going to be rejected by the people Peter's expecting him to save, and he's going to die. And look how blind Peter is. Look at verse 32. Jesus spoke plainly about this. This is just a summary we have here. Jesus spoke plainly. He taught them and taught them, made it clear he was a Messiah who had to come to die. The Son of Man would die. And look at Peter. Foot in mouth, like Peter always does. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. You get the ridiculousness of that? Peter takes Jesus aside and says, no, 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 come on, Jesus. No, 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 that's not right. Don't be ridiculous, Jesus. You're the Messiah. You can't die. What possible use could you be to us as a dead king? Wow. That's what Peter's saying. Don't be ridiculous, Jesus. Peter, you see, at this point, although he sees that Jesus is God's king who's come down, He has no room in his heart, no place in his thinking, in his priorities for a Messiah that dies. How can he kick out the Roman Empire if he's dead? How can he set up the kingdom of God, Peter's thinking, if he's dead? That's not right. Look what Jesus says to him. Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. Peter was leading them all astray here. Looked at his disciples. He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. Satan, after all, has been trying to tempt Jesus away from his mission, hasn't he? That's what he did at the start of Jesus' ministry. Do you remember he tries to tempt Jesus to abandon his mission, to worship Satan even, to take his eyes off the task? And Peter's kind of doing the same thing. He's trying to tell Jesus not to go to the cross. Don't go to the cross, Jesus. You can do better than that. Get behind me, Satan, Jesus says. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns, or normally translated, the things of God. You don't have the things of God in mind. You have the things of man in mind. 
I think human concerns is help, helpful in the NIV. That's the sense. And these verses are the key to the whole passage. Human concerns or God's concerns? The things of God or the things of man? That's what's actually being dealt with through the whole rest of this chapter. What do we care about? What do we worry about? What do we prioritize? What do we live for? Human concerns or God's concerns? Spiritual concerns? Eternal concerns? Peter is looking for the wrong kind of savior, the wrong Jesus, because he's worrying about the wrong problem. Yeah? If you have a water leak at home, how many of you would call for an ambulance? You wouldn't, would you? You wouldn't do that. If you had a gas leak, would you call for an ambulance? Well, if it exploded, maybe you might need to call. But ordinarily, if you have a gas leak or a water leak, you don't call for an ambulance, do you? If someone's having a heart attack, you call for an ambulance. The saviour you need depends on how you see the problem. That makes sense? And Peter sees the wrong problem, so he's looking for the wrong saviour to solve the problem. If you're concerned about human concerns, the Romans, the occupation, those kind of things, as Peter was, you don't look for a crucified Messiah. And if what you and I want, this is the challenge, really, deep down, is to be, I don't know, happy in this life, maybe to be secure, maybe to have enough money to get by. That's, that's really what's important to me. Maybe to have, if we have children, nice, well-behaved children. That's what's important to me. Maybe I want things to stay the same because I like my life the way it is. Or maybe I want my life to be different because I think it sucks. Either way, human concerns. Maybe I read certain newspapers. I always worry about how things aren't what they used to be. I'm not naming the newspapers. You can use your imagination. Or whatever it is. Jesus, if that's what deep down you want, Jesus, a crucified Messiah, is no more use to you than a chocolate teapot, as people say. He doesn't meet any of those kinds of problems. That's not what he's here for. He does give us good things, but that is not why he came. That's not the problem he came to save us from, and that's not what living for him is about. But what about you? What about me? If what we want deep down, on the other hand, is to be free from sin, to be set free from the selfishness in my heart. If what I want is to have a new heart, really to love God and enjoy him forever, and to love human beings that God has made, reflecting the way I love God, if, if that's what I want, well, maybe I'm coming to the right place. If I want to have eternal life, eternal life in the Bible never just means life that goes on and on and on and on and on, that is eternal, Life, eternal life is more than that. Eternal life is the life of God, the life of eternity. Come to us, real life. Jesus calls it life to the full. If I want life to the full now and in eternity with God, then Jesus is the right place to come. And Jesus' cross is exactly what we need. You see, by nature, we all, we all hated God, didn't we? We all rejected him as our rightful king. We've all turned against him, every one of us. That's what the Bible says over and over again. We rebel against God's law. We don't want to live his way. We refuse to believe his word when he speaks. We won't have it. That's what we're all like by nature. And that's sin, isn't it? And there are two consequences of sin. Often Christians only ever remember one of these. Really, sin in the scriptures have two consequences. What are the consequences of sin? One is a legal consequence. 
And one is practical consequence. What do I mean? Legally, in God's court, well, who are we if we're sinners? And that's all of us. We're kind of like terrorists, kind of like insurgents fighting against the legitimate government. God is the king, and we're all kind of treasonous rebels. We don't want God. And we're guilty of treason to the king. Not just guilty of breaking some rules in the abstract. We're guilty of treason. You know what treason is? Rebellion. Even trying to murder the king, which is, after all, what we did at the end of the day. We're guilty of treason and we're facing death, judgment, hell, God's wrath. That's the legal consequence of sin. But there's also a practical consequence of sin, isn't there? Is that we become enslaved by it. Paul speaks of this at length, particularly in Romans and and some of his other letters. We become enslaved by sin. As we turn away from God and we serve our own wants and our own selfishness, then our own deepest, darkest thoughts and desires, our own selfishness, our own insecurity, our own mistrust of others and God our own fears, our own anxieties, the things that come from our hearts and our sin. These control us. These dominate us. These steer our lives. These keep us even from God. When we reject God, he gives us over. Really, we give ourselves over first, and and, and he gives us over too to what we wanted, to those kind of things. And the good news is that Jesus comes to save us from both of those, doesn't he? He saves us from both the penalty of sin and the power of sin in our lives. So if this is the kind of problem you're interested in, you come to the right place to hear about Jesus, being saved from the penalty and the power of sin. How did he do it? What Mark's been talking about. Why did Mark have to rebuke Peter? What was Jesus telling them carefully? He came to die on the cross, to take the penalty for our sin, to take God's wrath, God's anger, rightful anger. It fell on Jesus not on his people, because Jesus has taken it. Jesus did it so that after dealing with the penalty of sin, after taking the wrath of God, he could then free us too from the power of sin in our lives. He could give us new hearts. He could give us a love for him. He could overcome the selfishness and all those other things. He could make us new. Paul writes, doesn't he, those wonderful words, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Jesus the Messiah came to set up the kingdom of God, which means, Peter was right on that, he is the Messiah, he has come to set up the kingdom of God, but that means God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. We know the Lord's Prayer, don't we? That's the best definition of the kingdom. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, perfectly everywhere, not just in the throne room of God. God's will is done in the throne room of God in heaven, but it would be done in all of our lives, in all of his creation. That's the kingdom of God. That's what God's working towards. That's what Jesus came to do. But for him to be able to do that and not just have to destroy us all, he went to the cross. He didn't nuke us all and start again with some other people who were better. He went to the cross to save us so we can have a part in that perfect world where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't God good? Jesus came first. That's why Jesus has come, to be that kind of king, a king who rescues his people that they might reign with him. So what about you here this morning? What about me? Am I concerned about human concerns like Peter? A nice life 
in this world, preserving my life in this world, or I'm concerned about the concerns of God, the thing God cares about, holiness, redemption, salvation, being adopted into his family, the kingdom of God, all the God's purposes that are going to be fulfilled. You see, the choice, if, you want, if you've got human concerns, you don't need Jesus. If you want to be part of that, of what God is doing, you need Jesus to save you from the penalty and the power of your sin. What kind of Messiah do you want? Peter, at this point, is still looking for the wrong Jesus. He's still blind. So that's why Jesus came. Jesus, first of all, corrects. Why did he come? And he moves on then. So what does it mean to follow him? We come to our perhaps main verses for today, which are really 34 to 38. The NIV calls the way of the cross. And first of all, Jesus defines what true repentance is. Just look at verse 34. Then he called, look who he calls here. It's absolutely everybody who would come. Do you see this? Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. Who was left out? No one. The crowd and the disciples, right? It's not just the disciples. Everyone needs to hear this, and everyone has to hear this the same. And then he said, whoever, again, who's left out? Who was listening? No one. Everyone who would hear, whoever wants to be my disciple, must. Whoever wants to be my disciple, must. This is about becoming a Christian. Let's not misunderstand what's going on. This is about becoming a Christian. Whoever wants to be my disciple, whether you're following me already, as the disciples were, not very well like Peter, but they were beginning, or whether you're not yet one of my disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple, must. Must. This is about becoming a Christian. This is Jesus preaching evangelistically. Must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Listen carefully. Jesus is not adding something. If you're my disciples, you should really try and do this. Do you notice that's not what he says? He doesn't say, if you're my disciple, then, you know, I've died for you. Remember that. You know, maybe try and, maybe try and pick up your cross. And fly. He doesn't say that. This is evangelistic preaching. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and then what? Follow me. This is describing repentance. I sometimes wonder, when I preach the gospel, when I do children's talks, when I, when I do things, I, 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 maybe other of us feel the same. Are we a bit cheap on this point? Are we strong on believing Jesus? Are we strong on repentance? What it means to turn away from how you used to live and come to Jesus. Jesus is describing repentance in these verses. We repent and we believe when we come to Jesus. Let's hear what Jesus has to say about repentance. Sometimes we try and make it almost too easy. It is easy to come to Jesus in one sense because he's done it all. He, he died on the cross. He paid the penalty. He gives us power. He's done it all. But he still calls us to turn to repent, to come to him. It's not cheap grace. It's not just easy believism. You know, live how you like. As long as you believe in Jesus, well, you'll be fine. Look what he says. These are people who are thinking about becoming disciples, the crowds and the disciples. Does he try and, you know, get them in on false pretenses or does he tell it like it is? He called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. This is the repentance part of the repentant belief of the gospel. Okay, let's work through what he says. 
continuing in verse 34 to start with. True repentance is dying to ourselves. And this is big. <laughs> this is big. Coming to Christ, becoming a Christian, is an invitation to come and die. I think that's one of the titles and one of the one of the episodes in the Christianity Explored course. It's a good title, Come and Die. True repentance is dying to ourselves. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Jesus is looking for self-denial. But what is self-denial? It's easy to kind of have a religious version of that, isn't it? You know, just giving something up that's relatively easy. Now, some people don't really want to think about this, but maybe they're I don't know. What do people do? Give up chocolate for Lent. Perfectly reasonable thing to do if you need to lose some weight. It's not quite what Jesus is talking about here. Maybe having a dry January. In our office, people always, they drink too much at Christmas, so they're going to have a dry January. Again, probably quite a good thing to do. You know, drinking too much is not a good thing. But is that what Jesus is talking about? Denying yourself maybe a dry January, maybe no chocolate for Lent. Maybe being a flexitarian. Have you come across that one? People who are vegetarians, not because they love animals, but because they worry about the, the earth's resources. Again, a good thing to worry about. Maybe eat a bit less meat, or maybe hardly ever eat meat. Cut down. They, I've heard people call themselves a flexitarian. Is that what Jesus is talking about? Well, it's not a bad thing to do, to think about resources, to think about others, to, th- to think about the environment. You know, not bad things to do, good, good things to do. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here when he says deny himself. He's not talking about giving something up for Lent or, or th- th- those sorts of things. He's talking about something much deeper than that. This is about choosing not to be concerned. This is dying to, this is self-denying the concerns of man, the human concerns that Jesus has just been talking about in the verse before. Yeah? What are the things everyone else chases after and lives for that we must die to? Not just things like chocolate, but maybe popularity, Maybe pension, career, standard of living, holidays, perfect children, whatever, whatever. In your life and your temptation, what are those things that you were tempted to live for, that you were living for, that fill your mind, that dominate most of your week? We've got to die to those things and orientate our lives to Jesus and his gospel. Deny ourselves of all of those things of man, of human things, worldly things that Jesus has just been warning about. True repentance, which is coming to Jesus, becoming a Christian is dying to those things. And in case we don't get it, in case we try and play it down, we turn it back into smaller sort of little religious things we can cope with giving up, Jesus uses a frankly horrific illustration, doesn't he? He wants us to deny ourselves and think about denying ourselves. The illustration he uses is someone carrying a cross. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Just just think about Roman crucifixion just for a minute. Because Jesus uses, frankly, quite an unusual marketing message. If he's trying to get people in quick, if he's trying to make it easy for people to come, this is a very odd brand choice. Roman crucifixion. You know, this is not, it doesn't, wouldn't make good TV. It wouldn't, it, it's, it's not good marketing, unless you want to tell the truth. Jesus uses this illustration of the kind of self-denial he's looking for. Flogging 
was the first stage, carrying a cross was the second stage, and crucifixion was the third. The Romans did it in three, three goes. First of all, they flogged someone basically to a pole so that when someone was sentenced to be crucified, the kind of flogging people got with a whip that had ball bearings to make sure the speed and the weight was, was decent and bits of bone. The idea was basically to, well, to mutilate the victim so that they would be an absolute spectacle when they were crucified. And actually to make sure they died, people would bleed to death potentially over several days. And and, and the floggings that they administered the Romans, would be unlikely people would survive more than a few days having received one. Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes of sometimes being able to see people's bowels and their insides. You know, this isn't the kind of Royal Navy, you know, don't be a naughty soldier, naughty sailor kind of. This is part of a death sentence. That was step one. That's what they did. It was absolutely gruesome. We know it was gruesome because people often collapsed. The Lord Jesus collapsed carrying his cross, which is step, step two, which we'll come on to. You would then take the charge written out against you. Jesus is said, we know what Jesus, Pilate wrote, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, the charge, because Pilate knew he was innocent, the charge would be carried in front of you and you'd be strapped to your cross, just the, ver- the horizontal piece, not the vertical. A lot of the paintings have this wrong. The Romans used to take the horizontal cross piece, a very, very heavy beam, strap the victim to it, and then parade them round the streets. In Jesus' case, out from the center of Jerusalem, he would have been paraded for as far as he could manage, he collapsed, of course, and Simon picks up the cross and has to carry it for him, doesn't he? But when people were crucified, they would be paraded around, flogged to a pulp, so people would, would not want to look at them. They would be so revolting. And then paraded around, carrying tied to this cross with the charge. It was a humiliation. It was a total defeat. And you'd then be taken out to the place of death. In Jerusalem was Golgotha. It would always be a prominent place where lots of people would see you in literally excruciating pain. That's where the word excruciating comes from. It means out from the cross, the word excruciating. We use that word a lot. Excruciating pain was when people were nailed through and hung in agony on the cross, and grown men would scream out. And that middle step, carrying the cross, Jesus picks up as a great brand for what's it like to follow you, Jesus. He picks that up. Is that the sort of place you'd go to? You want someone to follow you? Say, oh, it's a bit like that bit in between the flogging and the being nailed to a cross where you kind of carry the beam around. Oh, we weren't expecting that, Jesus. That's his answer to what's it like to follow you. Do you see how kind of shocking that is? People would have seen these crucifixions. Romans like to do them a lot. Jesus says, go back to the verse. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves take up their cross and follow me. So what kind of self-denial is Jesus looking for? Let me ask a few questions to help us get into the imagination. Imagine someone, not Jesus now, Jesus hasn't been crucified yet. Maybe someone was being taken through the streets to be crucified when Jesus says this. Maybe we've all just seen this. We've seen someone carrying their cross, looking, well, destroyed. All hope in this world is gone. Carrying their cross, being paraded through the streets, about to die in literally excruciating pain, being crushed by the weight of the crossbeam before they're going to be nailed to it and before it's going to be attached to the vertical. What would someone who's carrying their cross care about? What would they care about? What would concern them? If it was you 
Would you be concerned about human concerns or eternal concerns? How much do you think they're worrying about their next holiday to a sunny place? Maybe not at all. How much do you think they're doing retirement planning or thinking about the next round of golf or whatever it is that they live for, carrying a cross out to the point where they will die? Not at all. This is Jesus' point. What confidence do you think they place in their social standing? If it had been around in those days, how bothered would they be at that point? How many Facebook friends or Instagram followers or whatever? Not at all. Jesus is, it's a really shocking image of self-denial. They're about to meet God. What matters now? What matters? What would matter to you if you knew you were about to die? How would you live if you lived like you were about to die? That's really what Jesus is saying. Someone carrying their cross knows they're about to die. There's no kind of ifs and buts. They're going to die. Jesus is saying, deny yourselves and live like someone carrying their cross, about to be crucified, about to leave this world. Someone who's given up all the pretensions and the hopes and all that. Someone who's died to self. I'm going to die for you, Jesus is saying, and you need to die to self. You need to die to everything that holds you back. You need to live for me. You need to live like I'm coming today. Jesus is looking for disciples who've died to self and continue to die to self. Die to all the things that everyone else is living for. This is one of those verses that's horribly... People will say things like, oh, we all have our crosses to bear, just meaning, you know, a slightly awkward boss or, you know, a period of illness or things like that. Now, these are hard things. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is using the bearing our cross as an example of giving up all human concerns, dying to self. That's really what he's talking about here. We do go through hard times at work or whatever it is, and Jesus is with us in those things. He's wonderful. He's a wonderful savior who walks with us in everything. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about dying to the things everyone else is living for. And he spells it out a bit more. He continues, verse 35. True repentance is living for the gospel. If it's dying to self, it's now living for Jesus and his gospel. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. There are two kinds of people in this verse and in all these verses. Jesus says, those who prioritize this life, those living for this life, making choices for this life, trying to preserve this life, worrying about human concerns of this life, or people who live for eternal life, life that's in Jesus, life that Jesus gives us when we're born again and flows on into eternity, a life lived with him, a life that's lived, he says here, for him and for the gospel. Do you see that? Whoever loses their life, could be literally lose your life, more often it simply means giving up the things that we care about. Not every Christian physically lays down their life, do they? But we almost all spiritually lay down our lives. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. 
because that's eternal life. Which one are you working hardest to preserve and keep then? If a fly on the wall saw your daily routine and your weekly routine, which life would it look like you or I were living for? That's the challenge sometimes. Are we really living the way Jesus says here? Because he says this is for every Christian, doesn't he? And Jesus continues, puts another aspect on the same teaching of, of denying ourselves and picking up our cross. Verse 36, true repentance. We said true repentance is um, turning away, dying to self, living for Jesus and his gospel. True repentance, too, is living for eternity. Now, look at verse 36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world? Maybe to get all the riches, all the, all the things that people want. Or in Peter's case, maybe to kick out the Romans from the Roman Empire and have a wonderful kingdom of, of, of greatness. Whatever it is, whatever you're looking for, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world? yet forfeit their soul. Soul and life is the same word in these verses. So it's, it's the same word as life we've been looking at. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul or their life, their eternal life? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their life or soul? Of course, the answer is nothing. What do you value the most then? What are you living for as a prophet what, what makes a day a good day? What's a profitable day? Jesus is just asking us to think about that. It's one or the other. And true repentance in verse 38 is just continuing the same theme in just different aspects of life, really. So we, can, we should take it as one overall challenge. Verse 38, true repentance is carrying own, sorry, caring, not carrying, read my own heading. True repentance is caring only what Jesus thinks of us, not how we're thought of or treated by other human beings. Look what he says. If anyone is ashamed of me, this is another kind of human concern we've got to avoid. This is all about human concerns and spiritual concerns. If anyone is ashamed of me, so they're concerned about their reputation, that sort of thing. If anyone is ashamed of me in my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. We might say, if anyone denies me, abandons me, will not be known as mine in this generation, I will not be known as his. I will not own him or her when I return. So whose praise do we want? Colleagues, family, friends, neighbors, their praise, or Jesus' praise? Whose approval do I seek and you seek? Whose acceptance do we crave? Where do you want to belong? Where do you want to fit in? In a world where people hate Jesus and hate his people, are we proud or ashamed to belong to him? Repent and believe the gospel is the gospel call. And how does that normally begin? It normally begins with baptism. That's the first sign of repenting and believing. It's the first act of repentance is, is baptism. Yet there are many Christians who say they're Christians, but they're too ashamed of Jesus to want to be baptized, to want to invite friends and family to hear them say, I belong to Jesus. It's not just that situation. There are so many situations we face where we know we can be tempted to be ashamed of Jesus and to care what other people think and what Jesus thinks. About us. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous, sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes with his Father's glory and with the holy 
angels. That is terrifying, brothers and sisters. If ultimately we are not repentant, and one, one of the evidences that we're not repentant might be that, frankly, we're not prepared to have suffered disgrace for the name of Jesus. We're not prepared to, be, to own his name. And we all struggle in this, but fundamentally, if we're not prepared to own his name, we're probably not his. And he'll be ashamed of us when he comes. And that would mean taking the wrath of God that could have been taken by Jesus on the cross for us because he offers his life. He was good enough to save whoever would come. He paid enough. And yet, we refuse that payment, don't we? And we will take God's wrath for our own sin. Jesus will say, I don't know him. We will not be covered by Jesus' blood. And we will endure God's wrath. How terrible on the day of judgment. Jesus is warning. Repentance is a big deal. It's important. Just look back over verses 34 to 38. I've got them on the, on the screen or you have them in your Bible in front of you. It all sounds hard. It sounds heavy. In fact, Jesus uses, we were talking about this when we prayed earlier, Jesus uses a very heavy illustration. That cross piece would have weighed not quite a ton, but, you know, getting on for it. They were, they were very, very heavy. Jesus has used an illustration of something quite heavy, something difficult. But first of all, we, where do we start? We remember that Jesus walked this way first, that he's paid the penalty for our sin, and he sets us free from the power of of our sin. We look to Jesus. Mark has just done that. Jesus has been teaching, first of all, about his cross. But more than that, we look to Jesus when we fail, for he is gracious. If we are his, we will pick up our cross, and often we will drop it, won't we? None of us perfectly carries our cross like this all the way since we're saved, from the time we're saved into glory. None of us does that. Jesus isn't saying that. He is the Savior who helps his people. He's even the Savior who said, let me carry your burden. You know, join with me. My burden is light, Jesus says. I'll walk with you. He carries the burden with us. He will help us in these things if we are his. Look to Jesus, the pioneer, the author and perfecter of faith, Hebrews says, <coughs> who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Jesus went before you. He paid the penalty. He's given you the power. He will help you. But there's something even more wonderful. We have an incredibly encouraging example in John's Gospel, of picking up our cross again after we've dropped it and following Jesus. You see, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all introduce the teaching about picking up our cross and carrying it in this part. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have essentially the same account with Jesus, Peter declaring that Jesus is the Messiah, and then the, the teaching about the cross, and then the teaching about picking up our cross and going through to the transfiguration. All of them teach that. But John doesn't. John's gospel was written a bit later, and John expects us to know the others. He was writing decades after the others, and he fills in some really interesting things. And John treats this picking up our cross and carrying him, not where the others do in Jesus' ministry. John deals with it after Jesus has risen from the dead. If you've got a Bible in front of you, turn to John 21. John 21, right at the very end. This is John's reference to picking up our cross and following Jesus. I call this final point. It's not from Mark, but you'll see why I've gone there, because Peter picks up where Mark leaves off. Peter truly sees. Remember, Peter was blind early on, but now, by this point, he's met the risen Jesus, and he truly sees. And having dropped his cross when he denied the Lord, he picks up his cross again spiritually, 
And in Peter's case, he will literally one day pick up a cross. But look how Jesus speaks to him. John knows what Jesus has taught because he was there about picking up a cross and following him. That's what it means to be a disciple. Let's look how Peter is restored. John chapter 21, verse 15. First of all, we have the restoration. Now, Jesus was denied how many times by Peter? Three times. So Jesus restores him three times. And then he teaches him about picking up his cross. Jesus acknowledges the failure. And we all fail. We all drop our crosses if we're Christians. Peter is restored by Jesus. And then we have these wonderful verses where the image of picking up your cross and following returns. Right at the end of John. Look at this. Verse 15. When they'd finished eating, Jesus is risen. He's eaten with his disciples. Jesus is alive now. They all believe. When he had finished eating... Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Do you love me? Do you share my concerns? Do you love me and my brothers above all the world, above all those you tried to please on that night? When you denied me, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. He gives him a a leader's job again, to to be a pastor, one who looks after sheep. Feed my lambs. Verse 16, again, Jesus said, this is now fixing the second denial. Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus commissions him again to be a pastor. Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Jesus actually uses, if anything, a weaker word for love here. And Peter's hurt because Jesus asked him this third time and almost seems to tone down the question, do you love me? Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Yes, I let you down, but Lord, you know that I love you. Peter knows he dropped his cross. Look what Jesus says, feed my sheep. And then he says this, very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, get the picture, and someone else will dress you, or strip you naked, actually, in the end. You will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said, picking up Mark, follow me. What did Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say? A man must pick up his cross, deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. And here Jesus says, you're going to pick up your cross. And what? Then he said to him, follow me. Mark is alluding back. John is alluding back to Mark. Peter is restored, and he's told to pick up his cross and follow Jesus. Peter was going to literally pick up a cross and follow Jesus. In Rome, as far as we know, Peter was crucified. But there's something spiritual here, isn't there? Peter knew he dropped his cross. He'd heard Jesus say that. And here Jesus really telling him, pick it up and follow me. Do you love me? So who is Jesus? He's the Messiah, the Son of God, who is building the kingdom of God. Why did he come? He came to take up his cross, to die, 
to save us from the penalty and the power of sin. We've got to believe and trust in Jesus to do that. What does it mean to follow him? Well, it means, first of all, to trust him entirely. He's done it all. He saves us from the penalty of sin, and he delivers us daily from the power of sin in our lives if we're his. But then in response to that, it means if that's what Jesus is doing, if that's what he's done, if that's what he cares about, we need to take up our cross, deny ourselves, follow him. We need to be free of sin's power in our daily lives as we deny ourselves and follow Jesus. What if we drop our cross? Always remember Peter. We pick it up again. We drop our cross. We pick it up again. We start out, just like we did at the beginning of our Christian world, with repentance and faith. Every day, we need to repent and turn back to Jesus and believe and trust in him. Newly. That's what a Christian is to do every day. We often drop our cross. But if we're his, we'll pick it up again. We'll deny ourselves. We'll press on. What if you're not sure if you're a Christian here this morning? It's the same. If you see who Jesus is, the Messiah who came to die for you, he invites you to believe in him, to pick up your cross, to follow him. What if you're not sure? Maybe you think you're a Christian, but maybe you've repented before and you you don't know. It's just the same. It's the same for all of us. We can always turn to Jesus in faith, repent of how we have been living, pick up our cross and follow him. It doesn't matter what you did yesterday or this week. It matters what you're going to do today on the day of salvation, what we're setting out by God's grace to do this week. We can all be saved. We can all come to Jesus in faith, ask him to help us pick up that cross and follow him in a life of self-denial. When Peter failed, Jesus didn't say to him, Peter, why did you do that? He said, Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? When we fail too, when we drop our cross, Jesus doesn't say, why did you drop your cross? Why did you fail me? He says, do you love me? I have loved you and given myself up for you. Do you love me? If we do love him, if we're his, even if we're failing, He says to us again, as he said to Simon Peter at the end of John, after the betrayal, he says to us again, he says to you now, to every one of us now, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow 